Totally Football Show. As Rio, Keezy and Colin Meadtime stun the world with the weirdest punditry ever, Hold Our Beer says Team Totally as we discuss Man U's win at Wembley, genius goalkeeping or the worst Tottenham finishing since they tried rebuilding their stadium, West Ham's special rice and Dirty Leeds sending spies to Derby. Why didn't they just say they'd gone to see the cathedral? All that and more on the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Listener, today's starting lineup in grainy, black and white. Daniel Story, his arms crossed, and a come on then expression. Ian Irving, Liam Gallagher's got to be done on it from right. Manchester land. Hands behind the back, and hand over the badge. Always, Michael yeah. Cox, over the totally badge. Nice to see you, and it's live on the Totally Football <laughs> Show weekend. As I mentioned in the intro, that's seen punditry really taken to new highs. So, Michael, what do you got for us today? <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a good weekend of Premier League action, but yeah, overshadowed by some peculiar analysis along the way. Mm. We'll try and touch on some of that in the course of today's show. A show that will begin naturally with Sunday afternoon's big game at Wembley. Is that fair, Ian? Yeah, I think it's the right place to start, considering mm. uh, because it was well, it's fun to watch Manchester United again. I mean, I've sat in this room so many times over the last few years, uh, and and I don't think I've. I've maybe never said that sentence, I don't know, maybe once or twice, but consistently over the last few matches, the last few weeks, they've become a watch again. Um, and yesterday was billed as the biggest test yet, and certainly in the first half, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer passed it with flying colours. OK. What did he do specifically in this game, Michael? This club has, in terms of results, been utterly transformed. In fact, some listeners asking, have you ever seen a new manager bump the size of this one, if you'd excuse the expression. <laughs> uh, I think it's difficult to recall a side underperforming under a manager as, as much as they were under Mourinho. Um, in terms of this game, I mean, there was a big formation change. Uh, the lineup looked like it was going to be 4 3 3. Instead, he pretty much matched Tottenham's system, brought Jesse Lingard inside to play the Deli Alley role, which I thought was a nice contrast considering they played a kind of similar role together for England. And that seemed to really cause Tottenham problems. The fullbacks were pushing forward. The centre-backs looked exposed to the movement of Rashford and Martial on the outside. And even though the goal came from a pretty poor error by Trippier, not for the first time this season, it was very obvious that that was part of the game plan. It was interesting to see Pogba confirmed that afterwards by saying he was working on that kind of ball towards Rashford. And a very good finish as well. The second half was a completely different game. I, mm. mean, I mean, they were under immense pressure and obviously it was De Gea's uh, starring performance that won them the game. I'd be concerned at that point by... The lack of attacking. I know we've all spoken about Manchester United attacking more, but Tottenham started with two central midfielders, Winks and Sissoko. One went off injured, one was substituted off for Llorente. Tottenham didn't have any central midfielders and Manchester United didn't create a chance, really, after about 65 minutes. All right, so for all the euphoria about this fifth straight victory in the league, six in all competitions, mm. there were still big issues there that just weren't highlighted particularly by, by Spurs. We'll get on to why Spurs didn't, whether it was De Gea's genius or, as we mentioned, their, their own inability to to really challenge him. What did you make of it, Daniel? Yeah, very similar to, to Michael. I think the first half, Manchester United didn't outplay Tottenham, but the first half went exactly as Manchester United would have wished. They mm. wanted to soak up possession. They didn't allow a shot on target. They hit them on the break. They actually probably had the the other two best chances of that half as well as the goal. 
they were outplayed in the second half. Tottenham did put them under immense pressure, but we have also seen yesterday seen a, a defensive resilience and solidity that wasn't there in you know in previous iterations under, under Jose Mourinho and David de Gea. I think probably struggled from a post World Cup hangover. Uh, he hasn't been at his best this season, but he was he was on Sunday. Okay. Well, reaction to the game basically broke down into two camps. Those saying that Spurs were just shooting at the Spanish keeper and others like Ben Foster, who tweeted saying, please factor in that the guy has some mad sense to know where to be at just the right time. You can't teach that. Proper goalie, said the Watford netminder. Well, to get our own goalkeeping perspective on all this, what else? But let's dial up David Priest. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. David, thanks for joining us. Can you settle this argument for us? All those shots by Spurs, were they all just fired straight at De Gea or was it his own magical ability to be in the right place at the right time? I think it was a bit of both. I think there's a case to be said that it wasn't. he wasn't really overly extended for for many of the saves. Uh, but at the same time, you've got to give him credit for uh, his position. His position was faultless. His decision-making was faultless in uh, in the game. And I just think that uh, I know a lot of folks who went on the saves that he's made with his feet. For me, that's where he's excelled yesterday and that's where he's he's made the difference because we often see at every level, never mind Premier League and top level, those shots that in the round keeper's feet quite often go through legs uh, under bodies so it was um, yeah it was a master class in sort of how to use your feet effectively in goal yeah there's one where he did the splits to keep Kane out which I thought was particularly impressive for example were you to swap the keepers in that clash I'm not sure it would have been a 1-0 win for Man United possibly you could say that I think you know that um, you know you look at the goal that the Spurs did concede I thought was a, a brilliant finish by Marcus Rashford know that uh, Hugo was rushed into in his position and by the, the, the quick transition, but he probably was just, I don't know, half a step too far to his left, a little bit further, too far forward. And uh, at that level, you know, the small details make a hell of a difference and he probably would have to say that uh, David De Gea would have saved those shots. David Priest. Yeah, I, he's right about the saving with the feet. As a bizarre experiment last night when I was making notes for winners and losers um, I saw that Ben Foster tweet and it, I hadn't really thought about it before that you know if you just stick out a hand to make a save it's a very quick motion it's half a second but to actually stick your leg out and I tried to do it it's much harder than you think from a standing position I imagine you you're more caught, challenged though well, you feel like you're going to cause yourself a mischief every time you do it uh, so that the positioning to actually be in the right position that it's, you're not in the right position to stop the ball you're in the right position that when you then extend your leg it will stop the ball which is a very different thing and yeah he is the best in the world at it. I, on, uh, I honestly believe that he, the other thing he does is his sheer presence means that Tottenham's finishing was bad but his sheer presence means that teams tend to it happened a lot last season they tend to snatch and thrash at chances they think they have to hit the ball harder than they should or they have to aim for the corner more than they have and that can affect the finishing now Tottenham was slightly different yesterday in that they tended to hit the ball near him but they certainly snatched at chances and tried to take them early Kane in particular and I wonder if that's kind of one save kind of comes self-fulfilling in that Mm. it feels like he's impossible to beat He's a confidence player, David De Gea. I've always thought that about him. And yesterday just sort of proved, I think he even mentioned it maybe in, um, in the post-match interview, the first couple of saves, 
sort of set him up and it just sort of went from there and he's the type of player that if, if something's got it doesn't happen very often but if something's going wrong he seems to find it very difficult to drag it back oh. but if something's going right he just absolutely flies with it so you get the sort of performance that, that we had at Tottenham yesterday and, you, and we had at Arsenal last season which is actually probably a better performance than Tottenham because some of the saves he produced at the Emirates Stadium I don't think any other goalkeeper would produce but it just to me seems like if he's on a run of form it continues. If he's on a bad run of form, it continues. Uh, Emilio Alvarez, who's a goalkeeping coach at United, sits in front of us um, in the, the reporters' positions when we're, we're pitch-side reporting um, at Old Trafford. And so often, well, used to, actually, under Jose Mourinho, was actually on the bench now under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, is in charge of the board uh, for the subs and that sort of thing. But when he used to sit in front of us, it, during a game, maybe 10 times a game, De Gea would look across and Emilio would give him a sign as, as if to say, nice work, well done, or shake his hands if say you know maybe think about think this is in game, so having that sort of support um, to me as well sort of suggests that he still needs that despite the sort of level that he's at. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that each of the shots he would be expected to save, but that's not really the point. That's not that's not how probability works, and it slightly reminds me of what people were saying about Solskjaer in the sense that he would have been expected to win each of those five games, but it doesn't mean you should win. You know, you're expected to win all five, and the same with De Gea, you know. There might not have been any outstanding saves aside from maybe the older world one. But the fact he didn't make any mistakes is is why he is a good goalkeeper. He hasn't had a good season. I think it's probably been his worst season since his first one at United. Well, he didn't have a good 2018, I guess you could No, say. he didn't. But uh, but that was excellent. But this is definitely the standout performance of this season. It's the first time this season that I can remember us reflecting on a game and saying that he was the absolute key man. And when you think back to recent years for Manchester United, that's been you know the case at this stage of the season, already countless times. What about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer then, Ian? What's the word in Manchester? With with Gareth Southgate now being touted as one of the possible long-term replacements, is it actually going to be Solskjaer's job if he continues like this? Could they even get get rid of him if he has these kind of results? XEK saying, uh, is OGS a serious candidate for the Man United job or is he just another Roberto Di Matteo? Uh, for me, it's way too early to start saying he deserves the job or he doesn't deserve the job or, you know, it, it, I, I think you need to you need to get a greater sort of body of work to, to examine to see how things change because we're six matches in. To, totally take Michael's point about matches that they should win, you know, and they have won, but you need to see it over a longer period. But is the option there if he does continue to do that? Would that be the default option for United? I, I wouldn't say the, the default option because everything that I know and have heard, Mauricio Pochettino is, is quite clearly the, the prime candidate that, that United have in mind. Now, the shortlist is being drawn up or has been drawn up. You've mentioned there about the rumours over Gareth Southgate. Uh, no doubt there will be more names than just Solskjaer and Pochettino on that list because I imagine Daniel Levy is going to ask for a King's Ransom if mm. United hope to to get Pochettino. What Ole Gunnar Solskjaer can do is just continue the progress that he's making with this group of players, continue the work that he's done because I'm struggling to think of even a single player who doesn't look better now having had a month's worth of work under him. Absolutely. One of the remarkable things about Solskjaer is just how adaptable his surname is. You're going Solskjaer, I'm Solskjaer. Yes, on commentary it was Solskjaer. Shot. Solskjaer is correct. Solskjaer. But for some reason, I insist on putting K's in it, which actually led me to redoing several pieces of voiceover last week. Is that week. right? Yeah. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, so do pull right. me up on it, please. The other thing he's done, probably inadvertently, is he might have set a slight precedent for this um, former player taking over from... A man from an underperforming manager that's lowered the mood because this kind of managerial bump is not usual. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's 
managerial career up until this point has not been successful. Um, it shows, I think Jonathan Wilson wrote a piece last week saying, we sometimes forget that footballers are humans. And that's true. And particularly when they're underperforming, tactics analysis all of that of course it matters of course it matters but actually there are points in time when making feel players feel happy and being an ex-club legend can matter more particularly in the short term so I wonder if he's kind of set a precedent for for that kind of club legend taking over for a very short period of time in a way it's helped him being an attacker as well because the players who perhaps were underperforming the most for United were attacking players and I think Rashford put out an Instagram post last week joking that he sort of sat them all down and said this is what happened in the new Camp in 99 but I'm sure no doubt whatsoever because uh, you know that this is a, a massive part of Solskjaer, Solskjaer's management by the sound of it there you go um, is that he will have sat Marcus Rashford down and talked to him about his finishing when, when, he, when I interviewed Solskjaer he said that that was one of the things that he would do with players individually. He'd speak to them on a one-to-one basis about the things that he thought they were doing right and right. wrong. Which I imagine pretty much any manager would do. Can we just have a quick word then on Spurs to finish this off? Uh, they've now lost at home this season to United, City and Liverpool, which is not great. Perhaps more than the defeat, the injury worries on a squad that's famously not got much depth to it, Michael. Not sure what the situation is with Harry Kane, who looked in discomfort at the end of the game, but Sun's just flown off, Moura's out, and Sissoko too. In fact, Sissoko going just before United scored, coincidentally. Yeah, I didn't think that was a great change by Pochettino, actually. I was very surprised he didn't bring on Sanchez or Rose and switch to a back three, and that might have made them a bit more secure in the channels. Seemed to make them very open, albeit he did then change his formation at halftime. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they don't have a, a big squad compared to the other sides at the top, um, and it will be a problem if they get injuries, yeah. Johnny Blaine says, if you're going to Fulham next week as a fan, take your boots. Yeah, Dramatic. well, the, the, the likely front six as it stands, if no one recovers, is... Um, Urente starting striker is Ali Eriksson and Lamella and then Skip and Winks as a centre midfield which is yeah is light I mean Fulham might well be one of the most ideal opponents to play in that regard but yeah moving forward they've clearly got problems and they're suffering these Sissoko particularly these soft tissue injuries that very famously come about when players are overworked over mm. things like the festive period when there are no other options Tottenham have, in the Premier League haven't had a game since Son's debut where neither September him... September 2015, or yeah. Or Kane have featured, yeah. yeah so that's I, remarkable. So since September 15, there's never been a game without one of Son or Kane. Yeah, yeah. And Son's been the sort of obvious alternate, alternative to Kane when Kane has had his very few injury problems or even when he's needed a rest, which, of course, happened at one point this season as mm. well. Control-alt-concrete says, would Spurs be top of the league if they'd spent, say, £60 million and spent it wisely in the summer? If, say, Pochettino had gone, I want to do something for the team, I earn enough money. What do you think, Michael? Are they just a, a big signing away from being real title contenders? No, probably not, because the the number of points that the leaders are on is absolutely colossal. Um, they could have done with probably a central midfielder, but surprise, we're still talking about the last summer's transfer window when we're in mid-January. There you go, control, concrete, none of that. Uh, let's move on instead to West Ham Arsenal after this people of the totally football shows you know what you could be listening to right here you your company your product out here in front of hundreds and thousands of listeners who are mostly men between the ages of 25 and 44 as well as the twice weekly totally football show we've got a network of other football shows there's galazzo for the discerning cosmopolitan listener there's the totally football league show for the loyal hardy listener And there's the Totally Scottish Football Show for your listener who likes those big square sausages. And we've got even more podcasts on the way in 2019. 
some of them not even based around football or indeed sport. To discuss advertising on one of the Totally Football shows or across the Muddy Knees Media Network, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. We reach well over a million pairs of ears each week and now you can too. Email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Right, Daniel and Michael went to West Ham on Saturday. You always enjoy a trip to the London Stadium, don't you, Michael? <laughs> no, it's dreadful. It's a horrible ground for football. Um, and it's there's just something completely... This isn't an original comment, but it's so soulless getting there. You know, compared to what Upton Park was when you were going through, you know, proper East London. And now you come out of the tube station, you go kind of through the shopping centre, and then you just walk for 10 minutes of just nothingness. There's literally just nothing around you. It's the most bizarre approach to a football stadium I've I've encountered in England. Really? Um, but preparation for taking on Arsenal's midfield that as well. Well, empty walk, space 10 minutes of nothing. nothing. Yeah, walking right. through 10 minutes of nothingness. But nice. to to be fair, I think the West Ham fans after their initial, you know, grievances have made the bo- the best of a bad situation. I thought the atmosphere was really good on Saturday, mm. especially for a Saturday 12:45 game which usually 12:30 game which uh usually the atmosphere is a little bit flat. Their best performance under Pellegrini? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I think Arsenal were better than them in the first half. Uh, created a number of chances. Seemed to take shots bizarrely early and kind of, again, snatch at them. But yeah, second half they were they were better. Sami Nasri was, was good on his debut, far sharper than I thought he would be. Marko Anatovic was uh, not a lot of movement and waved goodbye to the crowd on his way off. So I think it's pretty clear what he wants. But yeah, West Ham just created enough. And in Declan Rice, they had the game's best player. OK, who won man of the match? Although, Michael, I think you would have given that to, to Nasri. Yeah, I would have. I mean, I think um, it was a popular choice. You know, he's just signed a new long-term contract, scored his first goal for the club, a very good goal. I quite like this game. Uh, I mean, when you're kind of analysing a football game, there's almost two different things going on. There's one that's happening on the pitch from 0 minutes to 90 minutes. And the other thing is the kind of storylines around the game. And the storylines here were Arnautovic is probably off. Nasri was making his league debut against his former side. Um, and Ozil wasn't even in the 18-man squad those things manifested themselves on the pitch because West Ham had so much more creativity than Arsenal, which is not what you expect for these two squads. But Arnautovic, Anderson and Nasri just constantly combined really well on the edge of the box, clever little one-twos. Nasri, I thought, was, was absolutely excellent in his kind of link play. And Arsenal just didn't have a player in that mould. You know, Ozil is not injured. He's not on the verge of a move. There hasn't been a specific incident we've been told about that he's been punished for. And Emery can't really explain it. You know, in the press conference afterwards, he was just saying, yeah, for you know, for tactical reasons, for selection reasons, he's not in the squad. And you look at the bench and Arsenal had three fullbacks on it. They had Eddie Nketiah, who is a promising young striker, but... Should he's not they have it. signed Nasri? I don't think it's a ludicrous thing to say. Yeah, I oh, mean, okay. I mean, he, yeah, he, he would have done a good job in that game. I mean, there's the only moments Arsenal had were from kind of what I call tactical creativity in the sense that their shape was causing West Ham problems in the opening period mm. with Kolasinac and Iwobi who combined really well down the left they have done for the last month or so. And once West Ham fixed that by Pellegrini moving Mikhail Antonio back to right wing back, Arsenal didn't have anything after that. You know, West Ham went ahead in 50th minute maybe mm. and I don't think Arsenal even vaguely looked like creating a chance after that because they don't have the players you know Ozil wasn't in the squad Mkhitaryan's injured Torreira only came on for the second half and you look at West Ham and you're thinking yeah it makes sense that they're creating more on the subject of the Hammers and, and Declan Rice how good is he going to be uh, we don't know and we should be careful to pile all the pressure on him although I did probably did exactly that on Saturday but no he what he is is he's West Ham will have players like Dimitri Payet and Marco Anatovic that get everyone off their seats and then at a point in time decide they want to be elsewhere because they're yeah. not a big enough club to keep those sort of talents. 
in someone like Declan Rice, they've got someone that everyone can really get behind because right. he's a homegrown player and their academy has been pretty wretched in the last 10 years, um, considering that they call themselves the Academy of Football. He cares and he works and he's mature and he's only turns 20 today. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he's someone to really get behind. You mentioned Payet and Arnautovic in the same sentence and my mind was going back to when Payet was doing great things there uh, at Upton Park back then, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And But then when he left, the club just seemed to fold in on itself. Can you see something similar happening, even among this current success, if and when Arnautovic heads off to the East? No, I can't because I think Manuel Pellegrini, although he's not perfect, is um, a stronger manager than that. I think he's a stronger character than that and I think there's a, a more of a feel-good about West Ham now than there was then. I think that, that feel-good factor was fuelled by... Dimitri Payet. I don't think this that feel good factor now is fueled by Marco Arnautovic. I think it's fueled by the team in, as a whole. There's a lot more quality around Arnautovic in that side than there was around Payet. Certainly, I, I really like Felipe Anderson. Yeah, he's, mm. the, he's he's the he's the star in a way. Yeah. yeah. There's a lovely bit where he was breaking forward and adjusting his gloves at the same yes, time. That was taking lovely. liberties. Yeah. Chelsea beating Newcastle two one at Stamford Bridge Saturday evening. On field, an absolute corker from William for the winner. And Chelsea scoring goals at home again because they, they'd failed to do so in their previous two home fixtures. But off it, almost more interesting, as Newcastle slid into the bottom three, there was that remarkable exchange in the BT Sports studio. Michael, were you watching this? Uh, I saw a clip of it online right, after the event. I suspect many, many of us have digested it thusly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jake Humphreys putting the question to one of his studio guests, Rio Ferdinand, that his criticism of the Newcastle supporters' appreciation or lack of of Mike Ashley might be in some way influenced by his business dealings with with Sports Direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rio was having none of it. Uh, Rio then kind of doubling down on his defence of Ashley, saying when they went down, he spent £50 million of his own money to get them up. Thank you, that should be. By the way, please say thank you for getting Rafa Benitez in. They're lucky to have him. Uh Ferdinand also suggesting that it was understandable Ashley wouldn't invest in the club because, as he described them, they are a yo-yo club. Yeah. Daniel. So, very briefly, let's do this in turn. Firstly, he didn't spend £50 million of his own money when they went down. They sold £80 million worth of players and bought £55 million. The yo-yo club, they have been relegated twice in, since 2009, which is as many as Norwich, and we might call Norwich a yo-yo club. Had they ever been relegated before that? But they hadn't been relegated before that in Premier League history, and both of those relegations have come under Mike Ashley's watch. That, to me, is more of a prosecution than a defence. The idea that Newcastle have no debt is is a complete fallacy. That's just proven false. Their, their published accounts say that they are £144 million in debt to Mike Ashley. Um, and the idea that they should be grateful is just an opinion, and, and Rio Fernandes is perfectly entitled to that opinion, but it's a ballsy one. <laughs> mm, I think particularly, and I, yeah, absolutely, you, you can have that opinion, mm. but I think particularly if, if you are in business with one of the people involved, it maybe should preclude him from pronouncing... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, for people that aren't aware, Rio Ferdinand's brand, clothing brand 5, has an exclusive deal to sell retail through the retail outlets of Sports Direct, who Mike Ashley owns. So, yes, there is a, a slight... Um, conflict of interest there, should we say. It, again, it doesn't bar Rio Ferdinand having that opinion, but there's a difference between having an opinion and repeating things that are proven falsehoods. And saying they have no debt is a proven falsehood, and that's very different to an opinion. Mm. I was also uh, dismayed by his point that they should thank Ashley there for getting him in. 
I mean, Benitez isn't there because of Ashley. Benitez is there because it's a big club and because he took over on a temporary basis. And the fans just took to him. Like, I d- can't remember many fans taking to a manager before. I was at a game, um, they lost 3-2 at Norwich uh, in Benitez's first stint there. Brilliant game, one of the best Premier League games I've been to. Norwich won 3-2. In fact, they both went down, so it wasn't the relegation decider because they're yo-yo clubs. Um, <laughs> but the fans just chanted Benitez's name the whole game. And he's, you know... Benitez is a funny guy because he's he's seen as quite calculating, quite standoffish with players. But at, at Liverpool and Newcastle, the fans just absolutely mm. love him, just absolutely worship him. And he's there for them. He's not there because of Mike Ashley. Ashley is a complete pain to him and is, you know, limiting what he can do. So I just, of all the inaccuracies in that statement, I found that the most, if I was a Newcastle fan, I would find that the most idiotic, to be honest. It was a sensational bit of telly, though. Interesting to see... Things getting quite so kind of nakedly confrontational. Yeah, it's difficult from our perspective, James, presenting programmes to put yourself in that position as well, because you've got that, you've got that sort of balance between wanting to ask the right sort of question with the knowledge that you've got, whether that came from social media or whatever, whatever, but also having that personal relationship with someone who you work with very closely, who was a close colleague. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because. Jake Humphrey gets a lot of stick, including from myself. I'm not sure he's been a fantastic presenter, but he used to be really good when he did the Formula One and he was good on the F1 because he took the piss a lot out of the pundits. I think Eddie Jordan and David Coulthard and he constantly had a go at them. And then he went to BT and then one of the first things that happened was they had Ginler on and he took the the piss out of Ginler's clothes Mm. and there was a hand gesture in response, which... One of our uh, friends, Raphael, subsequently paid tribute to, but that that was like almost his welcome to football. Okay, I can't do this act. I can't challenge the pundits. And now he is challenging the pundits, and everyone thought it was great TV, and it was great that you know for once the pundits got pulled up on something. The the, the accusation against Humphreys is that he's it's it's, it's a, a shtick. It's, it's non genuine. What the one thing that did feel was genuine. It felt mm. like proper analysis. It felt like searing insight it didn't feel like pre-prepared script which is what good punditry and good television should be yeah it, the, the whole thing with Rio though and his opinion of, of Mike Ashley in Newcastle just feels like a, a hard sell anyway you know in terms of on you one look hand, at the I whole narrative because whenever there's a kind of broad consensus it's always useful even if the opinion's wrong just to have someone challenging the accepted wisdom you know, yeah maybe Mike Ashley has actually rescued the club at a difficult time maybe in the long term what he has actually done is steered them towards finding someone who can take them on to other other places but it, it's it's useful to have those ideas floated even if they're not right yeah it just it just like Daniel was saying before, it's just sort of presenting things that are so easily knockdownable that that makes that then a difficult conversation. I mean, I'm sure this happened across the country, but in my WhatsApp group over the weekend, one of my friends who's a Newcastle fan, Al, who's a, a fan of this this podcast as well and listens most weeks. Hello, Al. Most. Most weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he just very, very quickly tweeted out, 10 years before Ashley, we finished, not in this order, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th and 7th. UEFA Cup semi, two FA Cup finals. 10 years since, we've been relegated twice, finished top half twice. Here's another good fact. In 13 seasons before Ashley, we played in Europe 11 times. 12 seasons since, we've been in Europe once. I rest okay. my case. Well, one, uh, well, the two questions. Really. On one, what determines where, whether Alu listens to the show or not? If you can find that out. <laughs> I'll ask him. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the second thing is... To be fair to Ashley, football changed. It wasn't just that he came in. That wasn't the only change. But 
there was a, a shift, there was a kind of lift-off of the top six just kind of moved away from, I think, everybody else. Is that fair? Yeah, money had quite a big influence in that. But to go for Oh, no, there's the Cox frown is no, being deployed I, at the, this. The, the, the problem with Asti is not necessarily a question of finances. It's a question of broken promises. Right. It's, it's insinuating that... For example, this summer, I will take I will every penny this club generates, Rafa Benitez will spend on players. It is then very quickly proven that Mike Ash that firstly Newcastle made a profit on transfers this summer, and also that Mike Ashley took ten million pounds out of the club. Right. That's what they're annoyed at. They're annoyed at someone that's openly taking the mick out of them and lying to them. And no amount of, you know, upselling or um, trying to pull the wool over people's eyes is going to work because Newcastle United fans care about that club so much that they will quite quickly spot when someone's taking the mick well, out of them. they've all said they don't expect him to put fortunes in no. necessarily. They just expect him to actually spend the money that the club is generating. Right. So now Rio Ferdinand's a very smart guy. Mm-hmm. Why would he have such a wrong-headed take on, on Ashley? I, th- I don't know. I've got two opinions. One is that he sells his, his merchandise exclusively to Sports Direct and one is that there is a, a strain of punditry now that means that people need big opinions and that people are prepared to die on the hill of those opinions because it, you know, BT Sport would have been delighted at how viral that went. And perhaps he has fallen into the trap of doing that. It's an odd hill to die on because Ian and I were talking before the show. And if there's one thing that Rio Ferdinand doesn't really know about, it's being a manager of a football club being a director of a football club, what he brings in expertise is big game experience, is knowing a dressing room, is being a big club with big ambitions. Mm. It isn't Newcastle. He's got no experience of Newcastle, so it's an odd one to die on. Although if we're only going to have opinions on things we have experience of, we might have a very short podcast. Um, True. uh, (laughs) If you're after a big opinion... It's harder to find one the size of that which follows Rio's comments uh, all the way from the Middle East. Richard Key's weighing in. If Rafa loves Newcastle, as he says, said Richard, spend some of his own money. He's got enough. Management is about teamwork. Why should it always be Ashley? Buy it. Still for sale. They're in the bottom three and Rafa is responsible. He picks the team. What's the position on Richard Keyes in, in the uh, So there is a um, the Newcastle Chronicle, which I suspect could do very good traffic out of Richard Keyes' stories, made a decision a few months ago that it wouldn't publish stories on based on what he said because he's, over the last two years, had a... Kind of bizarre. It's not even a Mike Ashley defence. It's a it's a Rafa Benitez attack. Um, he really doesn't like the bloke. Really? Yeah. I don't know why. Okay. Oh, we should probably have a word on Chelsea and what happened on field. This is a question from Alex White amidst kind of restless crowds at Stamford Bridge and a a fall off certainly in results. Alex saying, is Sarri Ball even less creative than Mourinho's miserable? I'm baffled by what it's trying to achieve. Other questions that Alex raised. Raises are, what good is a new striker if you don't create uh, goal-scoring opportunities? And would something radical like playing Hazard and Kante in their natural positions be worth a go? Which is a bit of an old old chestnut. But he he does describe Jorginho as a flop. Interesting numbers uh, reached by Jorginho this weekend. And almost 2,000 passes this season. Um, As you know, how many assists, Michael? One? None. Zero. Okay. Which I know that's not necessarily his function, but you'd have thought somewhere in among 2,000 passes, you might have at least inadvertently set somebody up for a goal. Yeah, maybe. He's, he's actually created some good chances that Chelsea have wasted because they don't have a very good centre forward. So I think those two issues are related. Mm. I thought they played quite well here, to be honest. Um, you know, Hazard is the false nine I don't particularly like, but the other forward options aren't really doing it. Would you care to hazard a definition of Sarri Ball? And do you think Chelsea are are still or have ever really um, managed to implement that? 
No, I think they're still in early stages because they don't have the right players, particularly in the final third. Um, what is Sarri Ball about? Well, his Napoli side, I think, is the best passing team I've ever seen. Right. You know, up there with Guardiola's Barcelona, they were incredible. And what their play was about, I think, was very similar to the way that they scored, the way Chelsea scored their open against City. They, they play the ball in deep positions. They tempt the opposition forward and then they cut through them suddenly. And they haven't always done that consistently. But this is a manager who had basically no pre-season. They've been in the Europa League, so they haven't had much... Um, preparation for matches you look at the table there one point behind Tottenham who we've all been saying are having a great season and I thought they played alright here they scored yeah. two really good goals I mean I've always thought David Luiz's passing is a little bit overrated I think if you get a defender who's bad defensively people assume they're very good on the ball I'm not sure he has been mm. but this season he's played some great passes and his ball for Pedro's goal was fantastic and Willian I know that the shot was from a difficult angle and was a fantastic finish. But Hazard's work in the build-up, you know, his turn in that kind of false nine position, Hazard's such a good player. Every game he does something that just turns the game or brings a goal. I think he's, personally, I think he's been the best player in the Premier League by a long way this season. So oh, I'm not quite sure why the Chelsea fans are, are quite so unhappy. Do you have other dealings with Maurizio Sarri at all? <laughs> sadly not, otherwise I would declare them. But, I mean, Chelsea fans just aren't conditioned to a kind of long-term project. And, this is going slightly better than I thought. You go back to everyone's pre-season predictions. People didn't think Chelsea would be in the, in the top four. They had them fifth and Arsenal sixth. Now, I know a lot of their position in the top four is because Manchester United have been so bad. But I think, you know, they're working towards the goal. They're in the Champions League positions. I'm not really sure what you want from a manager who was appointed about three weeks before the season. It's bizarre. It feels, but it, it feels that he's paying the price in some ways for Antonio Conte winning the title in his first season, which was which was unexpected and it was after Chelsea had suffered a slump and that was unsustainable and it was proven unsustainable the season afterwards. What Mauricio Sarri is trying to do is create a project where if Chelsea finish in the top two, they don't then the next season finish seventh or eighth, which is basically what they've done post-title success in the last two titles, I think. So, yeah, it's going to take a while. A bit like Arsenal, they both had really good starts as well, didn't they? And and now they've had a a slight drop-off, albeit Arsenal's is bigger than Chelsea's. Perhaps that then sort of opens up a, a different type of scrutiny because you've got a direct comparison where it was going so well and so perfectly almost and then now it's sort of stuttering a little bit. It, it's quite a harsh comparison, that. Even mm. if City win tonight, Chelsea will be six points behind. Yeah. This is a, a City team people are talking about as the best team ever last year. Got 100 points. They're roughly on course for that mark this season. I think people's expectations are just ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, if it's not going to work out for Chelsea, I hope they get rid of him... ASAP because he's a fantastic manager. You know, he's the biggest revolutionary in Italy probably since Saki. You know, Guardiola worships him. All the top managers massively admire what he did at Napoli and what he's trying to do at Chelsea. So he's a real, you know, let's not have him banished to the naughty step just because Chelsea don't have a good striker. I think it's incredible. So that result was their eighth nil-nil in a row and we've even had reports of fans falling asleep in their seats. Stuart is at the game, joins us now on the line. Stuart? Stuart? Sounds like Stuart needed Paddy Power, because with our new Same Game Multi, you can combine multiple bets from the same game, so everything is exciting. Plus, you'll get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your fourfold Same Game Multi lets you down. Paddy Power, enough of the nonsense. Applies to pre-match fourfold plus Same Game Multi bets. First qualifying bet only max free bet £10 per customer per day. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Spain. 
If you like big numbers, you'll enjoy Leo Messi. Let me get this right. He scored his 400th La Liga goal, becoming the first player to score 400 La Liga goals. Although Cristiano Ronaldo has now scored 409 goals, but some of those came in Serie A. So and the Premier League. Oh, and of course yeah. in the Premier League where he was previously active. Uh, but Messi has reached his 400 63 games quicker than Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, anyway, do numbers like this help you appreciate the scale of his majesty? Well, I think we've become slightly desensitised in that it feels like Leo Messi breaks. A, there is some dubious record that he breaks every week. 400 is a you know 400 is an excellent milestone, of course it is. Mm. But it, Leo Messi is a player you appreciate with your eyes, not with stats I think. absolutely so here comes some more 82 percent of those 400 <laughs> goals have come with his left foot sorry james uh 15 with his right foot only three percent with his head one in the european cup final though heading yeah. heading fraud leo messi <laughs> uh anyway they're 10 points clear of real madrid but five points clear of second place atletico madrid real madrid have climbed back into the top four in the league they're now level on points with sevilla uh, Real Madrid had a, a, a win with uh, against Real Betis. Dani Ceballos with the uh, the winning goal there in a kind of Urzel-esque situation for Santiago Solari. Uh, seven players were out for Real Madrid, but Isco still couldn't feature for them. No, they they also won with I think twenty four percent or twenty five percent possession. Really? Real Madrid, which is extraordinary. I mean. Clearly a deliberate tactic when it gets to that level. Fair enough. But, yeah, it's, it's strange to see from a Real Madrid team. Betis are good. They're a really yeah. good passing team. It was nice to see Canales score, who was, you know, probably going seven, eight years ago. He was the next big thing in Spanish football. Made the mistake of going to Real Madrid, um, which didn't work out for him. But seems to be coming good at Betis. Mm. Uh, in France, did you see Marseille-Monaco? I did. Did yes. you? Oh, well, I saw the extended highlights. All right, nice one. Um, well, how how highlighty were they? Yeah, it was a decent game. Um, Fabregas making his debut, of course, um, playing in the advanced role in midfield just mm. behind the striker, which I thought was interesting because um, he hasn't really played there for a while. Um, yeah, it was a decent game. It was you, don't, you never expect a cracker from a league and fixture, do you? But it was quite entertaining. <laughs> yeah, was it, was it Sunday night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, a one-all draw, I should say. One-all draw, yeah. which is a good point for Monaco, although it yeah. leaves them it's still in penultimate place. Yeah, an interesting game in midweek because they are going uh, to play Nice. So that is Fabregas and Omri up against uh, Patrick Vieira. Mm. I think that's the game Tom Williams was going to go to. It got postponed. So oh right, um, I don't know if he's making this journey. I believe he is. He is yeah. yeah okay. Anyway, up at the other end, PSG won, and they're thirteen points clear of who's the team in second place? Ian Lille. That's correct. Nice one. Good. In Italy, oh, there were cup games this weekend. It's the fifth round of the Coppa Italia. We'll have a Golazzo on Wednesday. Largely talking about Aaron Ramsey and his uh, decision to move to Juventus and whether that might even happen in January in any way. Things. And uh, there'll be another big topic in there as well, but we'll round up all the latest news ahead of City are returning this coming weekend. In the meantime, Premier League again. Uh, Ian, you went to... Turf Moor. For a big game at the bottom, Burnley-Fulham. Yeah. Um, Burnley won 2-1, but yet didn't have any shots on target. <laughs> Amazing that, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah. Jeff Hendrick um, was the interview that I did after the game from Burnley as well, and he tried his very, very best to claim that that first goal should have been his. And it was nip and tuck, maybe. It's a type of goal. No, Daniel's shaking nope. his head. The dubious goals panel in the room says no. 
even to have two on goals in the space of what was essentially just over two minutes was quite weird anyway, mm. especially the same player, Jeff Hendrick, being involved both times. In the first half, it was weirdly watchable. And, I, and I'd, <laughs> I'd find it difficult to actually put into into words why, really. Um, there was a couple of fellas sat behind us uh, in the stand who one of them described it's like watching pinball and the other one just said aye and <laughs> it, it was a bit like that and there wasn't sort of masses of quality in it uh, there was a, probably one of the goals of the season mind you right at the start from Schurler which oh, came wow. out of nowhere yeah uh, which was an incredible piece of skill not only to bring it down but to find the finish and it that really lovely thing where it it, it very nearly hit both pieces of woodwork mm. as well post and and bar um but other than that it was just sort of like you know the ball was all over the place the players were a bit all over the place it was just very burnley it felt like getting back to what burnley were good at in a way um three straight wins now yeah four in all competitions um which is a direct contrast to where they were before it's interesting actually because i've not been to burnley for for a few weeks um but but speaking to people around the place, why was that funny? I, I thought it was going to be like seven and a half years. Or something. Oh no, 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 just a few. No, because it's one of the clubs that I cover regularly, so I tend to go to the same places quite a lot. Mm. But it's been a bit of a break with Burnley, um, not for any particular reason. But watching from afar, I was a bit puzzled about the goalkeeping situation because actually Joe Hart has had a reasonable season. Um, mm. he, he's certainly not been the main culprit for their for their problems. Um, so I sort of went at the weekend that was the one thing I was really interested to try and find out why Daesh made the decision of changing goalkeepers and what difference it had actually made and actually speaking to, to people who watch them every week um, they just said similar Joe Hart was very unlucky but bringing Tom Heaton back felt like a bit of a no-brainer because of the the popularity around the place that he got warmth instantly from the crowd which seemed to g everyone up when he came back in which is not a slight on Joe Hart at all it's just that, that Tom Heaton is that popular and that seems to have spread and, and the positivity and assurance that he brings seems to have spread to his defence as well and it's directly coincided with Burnley's upturn in form as well mm. Fulham having some difficulty uh, implementing the kind of defensive changes that Ranieri wanted uh, more players being linked with potentially joining them over the January transfer window Ryan Barbel excitingly the latest which you'll chuckle at but we still quite love him in the Champions League he was pretty good the they need defenders I, though yeah, the re- yeah exactly the reason I'm chuckling is because the problem with Fulham is that they see themselves as this upholders if we must play this attacking football and all they need is two good defenders and they'll stay up if they don't buy them and they buy attacking players, they're idiots. They've right. got Schürrle, Sessegnon, Vieto, and um, Mitrovic. Mitrovic. Tom Kearney. And who missed the who missed the penalty? Oh, um, Kamara. Kamara. That's, That's enough. So many attackers. That's enough. Yeah. yeah. But mm. in defence, they've got a lot of defenders. You know, <laughs> they haven't got a lot of defenders. They played. They played six of them at the weekend. Wow. Um, if you include Callum Chambers in midfield, which. I didn't. I couldn't really work that out, considering it looked like the defence needed him. Yeah, I don't know. They just seem to have a lot of defenders, but whether they're of enough quality, I'm not sure. I think that would certainly be more of a priority in the window for them. Right. Well, but, they are talking. About, I mean, there's been talk of Gary Cahill and various other people. But isn't it weird? There's been barely any business done. We're halfway through January. And, yeah, that's true. And there's been barely anything. I mean, we've had a permanent. Dominic Solanke signing, which mm. which is not actually yet fit. We've had Pulisic at Chelsea, who's not actually arrived yet. Klein, Klein loan, Klein who did actually feature, and a punch and loan. But other than that, that's that's between twenty Premier League clubs. I can't think of much else that's actually happened. It's been really, really quiet on that front. Too quiet. 
Mm. Too quiet. Okay, so uh, Fulham are five points from safety. Huddersfield are in a world of paying eight points uh, off 17th place, who are Cardiff. They only managed to draw with Huddersfield. I did enjoy seeing... Who was the referee there? Changing his mind, which so rarely happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, correctly or incorrectly, I was I was left in doubt by the various replays on that over over Huddersfield's uh, penalty. But anyway, that, that that ended up a goalless draw at the Cardiff City Stadium. Palace, Burnley, Saints, Cardiff are all within three points of each other, just above the bottom three. Palace not out of danger, especially after that two-one defeat at home to Watford. What a goal from Tom Cleverley, Michael. Yeah, Have you lovely. forgotten about him too? I, I, I kind of had. Uh, no, I hadn't, only because his name came up for some reason recently. But yeah, he hasn't been playing much. Mm. And I mean, Watford do have a very good central midfield pairing. I think Decore and uh, Capu is one of the best in the division, actually. So I'm not surprised he hasn't got uh, a look in. I also really like Watford's first goal because it was very much one off the training ground, a header from Cathcart. Started at the near post, ran to the back. Three men blocking off defenders. Another starting in the six-yard box and peeling away to create the space. Nice. Really good delivery from Holobas, who I think is possibly the best set-piece taker in the league. And a good looping header. It was a lovely goal. I want to go back and watch that again now. But on the subject of Cathcart, he, of course, scored twice in this game. Mm -hmm. Uh, David Price asks, when a player scores an own goal, as Cathcart did, how much more likely, if at all, is it that they will score a goal at the other end than they normally would? Feels like that's the case, doesn't it? Brian and Adoy didn't come close at Turf North. <laughs> <laughs> I think they barely crossed the halfway Adoy's line. Adoy's one was particularly unfortunate, no? Um, I think they were both unfortunate in a way, I suppose. But yeah. Um, so, are you saying no to David Price's contention that if you score an own goal, you are statistically more likely to score? You just notice it more. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, it seems to happen a lot. It does. We're actually on course for own goals to be the top goal scorer in the Premier League this season after three years away. So Own Goals was the top Premier League scorer for about seven or eight seasons in a row. Really? And then over the last two years, completely dipped off. Really didn't have its shooting boots on. Um, but it's, there's been some, some absolutely spectacular Own Goals this season and uh, very prolific this week with uh, three of them. We three. need to get Own Goal in our fantasy teams then by the sound of it, don't we? Default well, captain each week. fantasy team is an Own Goal, <laughs> sadly. Uh, Zaha, Wilfred Zaha hasn't scored in four months, mm. if you were counting. That's the stat there. If we're talking about things down at the bottom, we should mention Southampton and their big win at Leicester. 2-1 victory for Ralph Hasenhutl's team. They're not going down without a fight, unlike Jamie Vardy. Oops. Mm. Yeah, he dived. Um, Southampton-wise, really impressed with Hasenhutl because he will want to sign players in, in January, but the one thing that is really noticeable now is that they they used six academy players against Leicester and had two more on the bench that didn't come on, so kind of almost 50% of their squad made, made up of academy players, which Mark Hughes wasn't doing. Uh, and what that does is it sends a message to the key players who were visibly complacent under Hughes that no one has a right to be in the team. No one's going to get picked on reputation. He's kind of sparked this competition for places within the team, which is getting the better out of most of the players because, yeah, young players will not, you know, young players will make mistakes and young players might not be as good as the key players. But staying up isn't necessarily about that. You don't have to be have bags and bags of talent to finish above Cardiff. You need to grind it out and young players will at least give their all. So I've been pretty impressed with... He's not doesn't seem to have done a huge amount tactically. He made sweeping changes, but he has certainly kind of instilled this new mood in Southampton, I think. Mm. Impressive win because it came away from home with 
only 10 men for the entire second half and with Shane Long as their lone striker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he won the penalty and he scored a goal, so it was his best performance for a while. Um, that and- goal, I mean, that was a Schmeichel own goal, though. That wasn't going in until Schmeichel tipped it in. I mean, to be fair, he hit it hard, but it deflects off Schmeichel's hand in. I, I can't have that because that ruins the stat of the weekend. That, oh, what was it? Oh, about? That his last four goals have been scored for four different managers That's at true. Southampton. Yeah, so, so you can't claim that as a okay. Schmeichel. I'm sorry. But yeah, anyway, it, sorry. I think uh, bad defeat for Claude Puel against his former club, of course. Mm. Um, I think the, some of the fans are getting restless. Very poor performance from uh, Mendy, who I think was culpable for both goals. It's only three weeks since Leicester did those back-to-back wins against Chelsea and Man City. Uh, it's bizarre. I mean, it is strange that, you know, them and Wolves both seem to be in the same situation of getting points against the bigger sides and then, you know, dropping points against teams they should be beating. The FA Cup tie, though, I, I'm still, and the League Cup tie as well, I'm still scratching my head about the team selection in both on both of those occasions. I mean, if Leicester are not sort of battling and around the position they're in now in the league, you know, what else are they are they fighting for? What what are they saving the players for? I, I get it that you need to give some of the some of the more fringe players minutes as such, but it's also I just don't. It's also, yeah. it's also even if you don't consider it the right move for the season, it's also such an easy, quick PR win when you know you're under pressure. Mm. You know, you know, for the first time I think at, at the weekend there were a few banners of Puel out or posters of Puel out. These sort of things matter to fans. Especially they really the do. We might, yeah, we might sit here and logic might dictate. Yeah, you need to give fringe players a chance, but actually, it does matter to supporters. So yeah, I, I think at some point he's going to get sacked, and we're some people are going to think this is incredibly harsh, and maybe rightly so, and some people are going to think it's the right decision, and maybe rightly so, because they are baffling even more than Wolves, I think. So, similar point in the table as what Southampton were when he got sacked from there as well. That's true. They were, I think, eighth, no? Yeah, yeah exactly Leicester eighth. Yeah. Yeah. Southampton, meanwhile, have moved the current Southampton have moved above Newcastle and Cardiff into sixteenth place. They have Championship side derby in an FA Cup third round replay coming up this Wednesday, uh, which is nice because that brings us on nicely to the big story in the Championship. Mm. We'll come on to that in a second or two. I'm just going to quickly mention Brighton lost at home to Liverpool. You know what happened here, listener. Ooh. I've got just a little stat that um, obviously Liverpool had lost their last league game to Manchester City. That's true. Uh, and they now they haven't lost consecutive league games under Jurgen Klopp, um, which is remarkable given what, that... What, like ever? Ever under Klopp. Uh-huh. Uh, which given that Manchester City, Tottenham, Manchester United and Arsenal have all done it this season, uh, Chelsea lasted it in March. Is, so it's 40 months, September 2015 under Brendan Rodgers when Liverpool last lost two league games in a row. Which is remarkable, really. Yeah, I think it was quite a big win, this, actually. It mm. kind of went under the radar, but they bounced back from the unfortunate defeat to Manchester City. I mean, they had an injury crisis here. You know, it's centre-back and they're playing Fabinho there. And not only did they keep a clean sheet, they didn't even concede a shot on target. So it says a lot about how they defend. It's not just the back four. It's a, a real team effort. It's an interesting tactical point, that, as well, which Michael, I'm sure, would be better placed than me to speak about. Using a, using a midfielder in that type of game at centre-half, Klopp was sort of saying after the match that... Um, he sort of saw that as an option now potentially going forward. I mean, it offers a different type of of option at a place like Brighton. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you play so close to the halfway line and you're not actually doing that much penalty box defending, you don't need to be that good in the air. I mean, I think Fabinho is quite good in the air, but yeah, it's, it's definitely an option for midfielders to play there. I mean, pretty much no one kind of grows up as a centre-back that makes it as a top-class centre-back these days. They're all converted midfielders. Or, really? Yeah, pretty much. For the last 15... 
20 years, all the best centre-backs have been converted relatively late in their career because it's all about being good on the ball ball, these days. Yeah, Yeah. And also in youth football, there's a kind of bigger kids, more physical kids tend to play further at the pitch because they can do the most it do the most damage there and as they then grow older they kind of tend to move back in, posi- in position that's interesting van dyke famously was a converted striker mm-hmm. um john terry must have been a def- short no he was a midfielder in was his younger days yeah all the best english center backs i mean so campbell was a center forward when he broke in soccer Spurs yeah. first team. and at lily shaw he was a midfielder jamie carragher liverpool youth team played in midfield rear ferdinand until midfield. quite late was a midfielder um john stones clearly I don't quite know when he converted, but he's clearly got the physique and the techni- technicality to be a midfielder. Um, has, has, have there been any famous, uh, say, for example, forwards who grew up as defenders? Has anybody has grown up <laughs> as a defender but then converted to another position? It's pretty rare. Gareth Bale, um, I suppose, is a left-back, or the, but full-backs is a, almost in a category in itself. Yeah, it? exactly. Even James Tarkovsky at, at mm. Burnley. I, I, my dad and his dad are very good friends and known him. Uh, from growing up, he, he was a striker. He was very quick. Oh, you've known Tarkovsky since? Yeah, he's yeah. very quick, nimble uh, centre forward when he was playing for Chaddy M Boys at the age of, what, nine or ten. Uh-huh. And it, it, he did exactly that. He went from forward and then he ended up in, in midfield on the wing and then he went back to defence. When he broke into the, the first team at Oldham, he was sort of like a, almost like a defensive midfielder. And, and that's you sort of see it in his game, stepping into midfield. That, right. that comes quite naturally to him. Okay. Do you think this will happen in future with uh, goalkeepers as well that will be saying in, say, 50 years' time, um, no one comes through as a goalkeeper now because it's all about your on-the-ball skills. What, You're what, all converted what, midfielders. And... Well, it's happened already. I mean, van der Sar famously only became a goalkeeper because... You know, he was a centre-back. The goalkeeper didn't turn up one day, so he went in goal. This was when he was about 15 or something. I think almost all goalkeepers. Alisson said the same. Manuel Neuer was a centre-back. That's amazing. All all defenders and goalkeepers are basically failed. That's like Donald Fagan with with Steely Dan, where he only became the the voice of Steely Dan because the the person they hired didn't turn up. Jamie Carragher said no one grows up wanting to be a Gary Neville to just end up there because they're not good in another position. Right, it's that yeah. type of idea, isn't it? Yeah. All right, well, that's apparently... Oh, uh, apparently that's enough of all of that, listener. So with a quick mention of the fact that Everton beat... It was at Bournemouth, Bournemouth. Bournemouth. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was... I was I was on my way to Gillingham Leave while this is. was happening. <laughs> uh, yeah, they beat Bournemouth 2-0. Bournemouth. Oh, look, they're in the bottom half now. But anyway, we'll touch on them another day because after this, we want to talk about Derby Leeds. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsors of Melchester Rovers. Find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com. Football League listener, big story, big story this weekend as Derby took on Leeds, which would have been a big game anyway, but it was even bigger after Leeds' nefarious pre-game activities. Uh, I mean, we've all seen the story, I'm sure. Mm. A Leeds scout... Making mockery, really, of the, the whole concept of scouts' honour was discovered <laughs> with, a, with a pair of pliers or something by Derby's training ground. And then Bielsa came out and said, yes, that's true. What's the problem? I, I've always been sending scouts around. <laughs> why, why didn't he have binoculars? I'm not yeah. sure. You know, I mean, that seems like obvious Derby, spyware. You're not, you're not actually that far. Derby's training ground yeah. is the most open, available 
training ground to watch them train as a member of the public anyway. The the weird thing was not that there was someone watching training because kids quite often do it. It mm. was that it was a Leeds United employee. But that kind on of thing, public property on public says happens all the time. And certainly that was my impression. And mm. the only reason I kind of became interested in this story is when people started talking about potential points penalties for Leeds. No, they, that's a nonsense. It, there are they haven't broken any rules. Um, there's no rules to say that you can't do that. It's what it is is considered. Um, bad form which is a very different thing and and does you know does make a difference it really does in that it does matter how your reputation sees and Leeds will be they, they will have a word with Bielsa and say look you can't really do that here does it who does it matter to uh it's an unwritten rule which sounds and it sounds a nonsense but it does matter I think the kind of idea of old school ungentlemanly conduct and I think they probably won't do it again, but I don't think there needs to be a big hoo-ha about it. One thing that will definitely happen is that Frank Lampard will absolutely insist on trees being planted we'll around. Build a wall. Yeah, and make Leeds <laughs> pay for it. <laughs> yeah, Someone's had that idea before, I'm pretty sure. Um, that will definitely happen, and that has happened at numerous Premier League clubs when right. new managers have come in. One of the first things they've noted, and I'm guessing that's because they think that people have had the same sort of idea as Bielsa, is that they need to make it much harder to see. I remember Carlos Tevez training on his own at Manchester City, supposedly in privacy at the back of uh, their Carrington training ground, and, and literally the world's media effectively spying through a hole in the fence at Tevez training on his own, and, and shortly after that, uh, well, City moved training grounds, but shortly after that, they, they 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 made it much harder for for people to be able to do that. So I was just going to say that Leeds increased their lead, so their lead to four points at the top of the championship with this two nil victory, uh, Michael. But this thing will go, I think, almost next level. There's been reports in other countries of kind of drones being mm. used to to spy on teams. So, I mean, it's if we're going to go to that level, it's just going to cost teams tens and tens of thousands of pounds to put up security and by drone eliminators and all this stuff it's almost like we just need to say actually let's not do it i know it's people think you're a bit of a square if you say it's ungentlemanly conduct but we'll just get to such a weird situation and it will benefit the rich clubs who can invest in this kind of technology that actually maybe we should say yeah let's not do that it's a fascinating world that you you envisage there <laughs> mm. of kind of spy and counter spy played out in the skies above training grounds i mean more interesting than some of the matches at championship possibly level, so how interesting was this 2-0 win for leeds uh it was what i will say it was an absolutely extraordinary atmosphere at ellen road they really are i mean of course they're behind marcelo bielsa and everything he's trying to do because it feels different and it feels new and it's long felt tired at ellen road but the the atmosphere that those fans now i don't normally think it but to me, I think it makes a difference. I do think it makes the players better than they are. I only watched the game on television, I should say. I wasn't there, mm. but uh, I have been to Ellen Road this season. And yeah, the atmosphere they're creating is great. All right. I tell you what, it was a great story for the. I mean, I'm not mm. inclined to watch that much championship football, but this was almost like one of those really inevitable scripted, you know, fights between boxers at the weigh-in, that where you're just like, like actually, team, actually I will pay £40 to watch this on paper. <laughs> right. It was that. Well, there was this glorious comment on, I think, Sky Sports News where they said, the two teams involved in this spying scandal, the, the affair had been spiced up still further by the fact that they were about to face each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why did you think they were doing the spying in the first what place? Coincidence. Nottingham Forest, meantime... They're just nosy, James, that's all it was. <laughs> yeah. you know. yeah, Nottingham Forest, sorry, right. Uh, so Ito Karenka has gone mm. from Forest, and who's taking over at the city ground? And what happened this weekend as they lost... At Reading, second yeah. bottom from of the table, Reading. Yeah, even by Forest fans, it's been a good week. I said I said on this show last Thursday, I think it was that 
um, he would go soon and he went slightly earlier than I thought. Um, but yeah, they lost to Reading in the relegation zone. They had two players sent off. They scored an own goal. They lost 2-0. Uh, they wanted Slavisa Jakanovic. It now looks like they, they haven't got Slavisa Jakanovic because they are appointing very much the natural second choice from Slavisa Jakanovic's attacking brand of football in Martin O'Neill. Oh, is that uh, actually happening? Yes, that's happening, yeah. That's confirmed? Uh, that's their man, yeah. And O'Neill is, will take the job, I think. Is Roy Keane part of the package? I, I don't know. He has also had John Robertson as his assistant. Um, so, uh, probably one of those two. But Keane has obviously been his most recent assistant and has history at Forest. So, it would make some sense in a bizarre way. I mean, it... it, it it's a strange one, in so much as Forrest sacked Karanka largely because they were unhappy about, not necessarily about the results, but about the style of football. And O'Neill is not renowned for his silky attacking play, so it will be interesting to see. It, it feels like a club that is making decisions on the hoof and has been doing for about six or seven years, so who knows? It's not fair to say that if O'Neill's coming back with his connections to the club, you don't need this assistant who's a club man. No. You know, you kind of... I got it, for example, when Mourinho appointed Carrick as some kind of link to the fans. Not that that necessarily worked, but O'Neill surely needs a kind of younger, well, one, more strategic kind of assistant. One positive move would be to, um, without going too much into the minutiae of Nottingham Forest, would be to to pick Chris Cohen as his assistant, who is managing the under-18s at the moment. And is um, it's impossible to think of a more popular out club outsider in that he didn't come through the academy Chris Cohen he came from West Ham and Yeovil uh, yeah he would be an incredibly popular choice but I struggle to see how it works out but I've been wrong many times before on Forest so who knows okay well there's much more of this kind of talk at the always on the ball totally football league show latest edition of which will be available Tuesday afternoon Quick shout for Ed Quoth-Raven who says, I realise this sort of thing happens a lot more in Serie A, but in the National League South, Dartford beat St Albans City 3-2 and there were goals from Charlie Sheringham and Sam Merson. Oh, lovely. Son of Paul and Teddy. Not, you know, they're not a couple. <laughs> Separately. I saw uh, Federico Chiesa was on target again oh, for yeah. Fiorentina. I think of all the kind of sons of players, mm. he's the one that reminds me most of his dad. He does, yeah. yeah. Oh, Kasper Michael. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Kasper Michael. Goalkeepers like feels like yeah. cheating. Uses his hands, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, well, he will do. They all do, <laughs> apart from David De Gea, who uses his feet. Makes himself big. Now, let's get some odds on some of the many things we've been discussing today. Courtesy of producer Ben and his uh, twice-weekly chat with Paddy Power. Hello Jimbo, hello listeners. Highlight of the showtime, Lee Price from Paddy Power. What's going on? It's uh, the calm after the storm, crazy weekend betting-wise. I'm not sure what this week holds. All right, well, let's talk about Man United. Uh, sixth win in a row for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Can they finish fourth? We think they will, actually. And we think Ole might be the man. We've paid out on him being the next permanent Man United manager. Slightly premature, perhaps. Um, they're now 5-2 to two to get fourth place. A massive improvement from when he started. They are still behind Chelsea in the betting, though, and that's going to be their main rival. Chelsea are 1-4 to finish fourth, but all the momentum of United. Managerial news. Claude Puel, has he got a future at Leicester? Probably not, to be honest. Every time they play a game, he becomes the favourite in the next managed market uh, to leave. But David Wagner is currently the favourite to leave his post next. Uh, speculation about whether he's walked. He's now odds-on to go next, 8-13. to Claude Puel, 9-4. to But you can guarantee next time Leicester don't win a game, Puel will be odds-on again. It's surely only a matter of time. And speaking of only a matter of time, uh, let's talk about Neil Warnock. Is he not going to get his way? Give me some odds, please, on Brexit not happening or there being a second referendum, at least. 
Yeah, the second referendum market, as you might expect, has been by far the most popular market on our site since this whole Brexit thing has started. It's now 13 to 10 that there is a second referendum this year, um, which is crazy money, really. Four to seven there isn't, though. And as for Brexit not happening, we still think it will. Still odds on to happen, but those odds are getting tighter and tighter because no one has any idea what's actually going on. You can find out all these odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only, begambleaware.org, and when the fun stops, stop. Speaking of which, that's what we should do now. Totally Football Show will be returning on Thursday with Matt Davis-Adams, Emma Saunders and Duncan Alexander. There'll be a golazzo before that, and as I mentioned, Football League Show on Tuesday. Have you got any big plans next few days I've actually got a quiet week no midweek games this week uh-huh. uh, Newcastle Cardiff at the weekend but right Ian heading to Burnley at all this week uh, no I'm planning on having a, a break for a few weeks really nice yeah. okay F- from Burnley oh, yes. I'm still working <laughs> yeah. okay I'll yeah. be going to Harrogate on Saturday for National League action lovely up at Harrogate yeah, yeah. lovely ground where, but, do you, where do you stay uh, I, I don't know <laughs> no Weatherby Road is that right yeah, there's a, a little hotel near there called Running Park. Beautiful spot. Is that right? Bielsa okay. lived there, I think, for about six months. I'm going for the game, Prince. Oh, did you? So it's Harrogate against Hartlepool. Nice. Michael? Off to the snooker on Thursday. Oh, if yeah? You, if you wanted a totally snooker show, I'd be up for that. Is that at the Crucible? No, that's uh, that's the World Championship in, Masters, in April. It? It's the Masters at Alexandra Palace. Oh, right, OK. Interesting, because it's obviously just after the darts, but a very different... Very um, different crowd. You know. Very different crowd. Listen, whatever you're doing... This week, I hope you have a great time. Should you wish, we'll be here on Thursday. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com and don't forget to check out our other football podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.